As we prepare to receive the preached word, let us be reminded this morning of how blessed we are uh, on a normal basis to have a very comfortable place. Our air conditioners are out this morning, so we're going to deal with um, just a little taste of, of things that brothers and sisters throughout the world deal with regularly. So it's going to be a little uncomfortable today, but I think we'll get through it. So let's pray. Our great God, as we come before you, Lord, we do pray that you would help us to remember the many ways that you bless your people. God, we thank you for your ordinary means, God, that we can, week after week, sit under sound teaching. We thank you for our pastor and the way you've blessed him. We, uh, we thank you also for Pastor Deneau and, and the many ways that you have blessed him and his desire to serve you, um, even in a different country, on this, your Lord's day. Lord, we pray that you would bless him. We pray that you would help him to boldly proclaim your word on this, your day. And we pray that you would give us uh, soft, softened hearts and eager ears to receive your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, you may open your Bibles in the very last chapter of the very first gospel. It's not open. Okay. Yeah, that's true. Got it? All right. Um, so our text for this morning is um, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to 20. Uh, the text will be there in front, but I invite you to keep your uh, copies of God's Word uh, open uh, during the entire uh, sermon. And I'll, I'll be quoting here and there different texts that will be uh, there in front, uh, but you can always have the text under your eyes. Let's read um, this text. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. May the Lord bless his holy word. Um, so we are here in the context of the resurrection of our Lord. Um, this is not the first appearance. It's not in uh, Judea that this scene is happening. It's in Galilee where he has sent his disciple to meet with him. Uh, so maybe a week or a few more weeks after he was resurrected. And these are the last words of Jesus recorded by Matthew. And in these, he's giving us what we call the Great Commission, the church mission. And in it, we have a, what is our mission? Well, what was, first of all, the mission of his apostles? but also what is still our mission, but not just the mission, but also what the church ought to be in its essence. Originally, I have preached five sermons on this text, so it's too bad that your air conditioning broke just when I was going to give you a five-hour sermons. These five sermons are going to be my five points for this one sermon uh, on this text. Um, thank you, brother. So here are the five points where we will go through. Jesus' authority, Jesus' messengers, 
Jesus' baptism, Jesus' instruction, and Jesus' presence. And concerning his authority, there are four aspects I want to quickly go through uh, about his authority. First of all, the nature of his authority. Here Jesus is not talking about his divine authority. Let me quote John Gill, a very known Baptist theologian that is appreciated from the modern Reformed Baptists. I uh, encourage you to uh, use his commentaries as you go through the the scripture. You can have them freely online and he uh, commented the entire Bible. Uh, He has also an important systematic theology that you probably can find easily. Um, And in this uh, in, in, in his commands, he's explaining uh, what is the nature of our Lord's authority. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth, which is to be understood of him, not as God, who has the same original and underived power and authority over all creatures and things in heaven and earth as the Father has, but as mediator to whom all things are delivered by the Father. So we make a distinction between Jesus' two natures. Uh, and we're, not, we're, we're saying that they abide in just one person. But we ought not to mix or confuse uh, these two natures. Uh, and from those two natures, we can also understand that Uh, Jesus, of course, has divine authority over all creation, but here he's talking about an authority that has been given to him. No one has given authority to God. He is the authority from all eternity. It cannot be derived. So if Jesus talks about an authority that was given to him, he ought to talk about his messianic authority that he exercises over everything. all the visible and invisible world as the messianic king. Second uh, point concerning his authority, it's uh, the, or, uh, the origin of his authority. Note the passive form of the verb. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So who gave it to him? We can ask. And even though the text doesn't say, it's implied that it's, the one from where all authority comes from. It's God, and specifically it's the Father who gave him his authority. But why did he give him his authority at this point in history? Didn't he, as the Son of God incarnate, have the authority over everything when he was born or when he began his ministry on earth? He received this authority because he succeeded in his mission and restored man to his honorific position. We read in Psalm 8, verse 4 to 6, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Here we have David, King David, that is reflecting, thinking about God's work of creation. And he's, he has God's revelation, the first chapters of, of what Moses wrote in Genesis. And there we see that God has given dominion to men. Uh, that he can exercise dominion over all the work that the Lord has made. But when David is contemplating that, he is contemplate um, what is not anymore the actual status of man. Even though man was called to exercise dominion, he's now a fallen creature. And especially he has fallen under the authority of the devil by submitting himself to the devil's word rather than resisting him 
and, and casting him out of the garden or, or slay the serpent in the garden as was his original mission. So man has forfeited his authority and he has lost his, um, his place of honor where our Lord God has put him in the beginning. And here um, in this psalm, it is quoted in, in the New Testament and in the epistle of Hebrews especially, and apply that to Jesus Christ, who came and for a little while was under angelic being, not that the devil had any authority over him because he was sinless, but he came into a fallen humanity, and he came as a weak man, and he came and he shared uh, of this fallen estate without sin. When, when Paul is saying that uh, in the incarnation, he became just like us, just like our flesh, uh, he means by that that he didn't assume a glorified estate, but a, a weak one who could die. And actually, not only he could, but he did effectually die. So he, he became in this, this place of humiliation, in order to, be, to, 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 to defeat the devil, to defeat sin and to defeat death. But he had to go through obedience uh, to the point of death in order to succeed in this mission that he had received from the Father. And what was the result of that is that man is restored to, to this honorific position of having authority over everything that God has created. Everything was put under his feet uh, for the exception of God himself who, who has put, have, have submitted everything under his feet. All the rest except God is under the Son of Man's rule. Um, so Jesus didn't start his mission as an enthroned king, even though he was the Son of God. Even though he was the son of David, he didn't start as king, but as a lowly servant. Read with me in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 to 11. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He who was in, in equality with, with the, the father, uh, sharing his uh, eternal nature, has emptied himself. And by that, we, we don't mean that he has lost anything of his divine essence or attributes, but he has assumed uh, the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, see that connection he was obedient, he was faithful to the point of death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there's no one above him. He has received this authority given by the Father because he has been successful in his mission. Thirdly, the scope of his authority. Note that Jesus' reign is universal in the widest sense possible. Not only in all the visible earth or the visible universe, but in heaven and on earth. And by these two words, heaven and earth, um, Jesus is referring to the two spheres that are all, all encompassing, all the visible and invisible worlds. And it would be very interesting to discuss what this means in the political arena from a Baptist point of view, but we don't have time for that. But Jesus rules over every kingdom of this visible world. And fourthly, what is the goal 
of this authority. Why is he stating that here at this point in time? The goal is the mission that is stated hereafter. See the connection between verse 18 and verse 19. He says in verse 18, All authority has been given to me. Go therefore. There's the un in Greek. Uh, this uh, connect, connection, this uh, conjunction that makes uh, a logical connection between what has just been said. Since he has all authority, there's a mandated mission that comes that is founded upon and a consequence of the authority of Christ. Hear how John Calvin states, uh, states it. He says, Before relating that the office of teaching was committed to the disciple, Matthew says that Christ began by speaking of his power, and not without reason. For no ordinary authority would here have been enough, but sovereign and truly divine government ought to be possessed by him who commands them to promise eternal life in his name, to reduce the whole world under his sway, and to publish a doctrine which subdues all pride and lays prostrate the whole hum of the human race. So even though he's talking here about his messianic authority that he's exorcising according to his human nature, it's a divine authority that is given to him. It's not through human authority, human powers that he is receiving that. It's God's kingdom. And he is God's king, established over God's creation, visible and invisible. And the consequence of that is that there is a mission that is given to his disciples. And this mission is founded upon the authority, the supreme authority of our Lord. So, sometimes you may have some difficulties when you think uh, of, you know, we live in a culture that is asking of us, uh, from what right do we have to call people to repentance? To tell them that if they don't believe in our Christ, they will perish in hell. And who are we to uh, attack other views or say that other religion or or practice of men are not good enough. Well, that's not our message, and that's not according to our authority that we're speaking the gospel and preaching and calling men to repentance and faith in Christ. Jesus has received all authority over every person and summons everyone to believe in him, and he's summons them through the mission of the disciples, the mission of the church. So we have a legitimate authority to speak in his name to do this mission. And something else is important that we understand. There are no authority under heaven that can stop us from preaching this gospel. And if they attempt to stop us, as it has often been the case in church history, even in the book of Acts, well, we can resist them in a proper way. We're not there to uh, tear down aside authority and the structure that God has put in place, and we can support persecution, but we ought to disobey authority that would try to prevent the church mission, try to prevent the preaching of the gospel, the assembly of the saints to serve our Lord of making disciples. It might be wise in some country to make uh, the coming together secretly. We don't necessarily have to go boldly in front of, of the, the authority and, and, and seeking persecution, uh, but we ought not to obey the rulers of this earth if they want to make us disobey the supreme authority of our Lord. So we need to understand that the Great Commission is similar to the conquest that was given to the people of Israel just before the, 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 the time of their wilderness uh, and they're getting into 
Canaan, and they were there to conquer the land that the Lord was giving to them. The, this is, this great mission, the last and ultimate conquest. We need to use the right weapons, though. We're not fighting against uh, carnal entities, but we're battling, it's a spiritual battle, and we need spiritual weapons to do this, this war. But we ought to be in a conquest mode of the entire world. So this is for Jesus' authority. Second point, Jesus' messengers. We see that the Lord entrusts his authority to representatives. He does not send angels. At some point, he will, at the last uh, day, send angels to uh, bring forth the last judgment. But now he sends disciples. So who must go? And all disciples are concerned, but I think there is an order in the call of the disciples. Firstly, the Great Mission had an apostolic um, imperative tied to it. Paul is saying that even though uh, the apostles are the foundation of the church, so they are kind of first in the call, they are the last of men because uh, it's in the, this kingdom, the authority comes with great sacrifices. Our, the, 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 the chief authority, Christ himself, was the chief servant who went to the point of death. And after him, the apostles who, has received, who have received great authority over the universal church were also last uh, of men. Um, but they have received this in the apostolic call, the authority to, uh, if we read in Romans 1 verse 5, uh, he says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. And what is the apostleship for? It's to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So that was the mission of the apostle to bring the nations to the obedience of faith. But the apostle didn't finish the mission. They made a very good start by establishing the Lord's church uh, among many nations, tribes, and tongues of this world and by giving us the full revelation of the new covenant that was needed in order to, know, to understand how to continue the mission. So secondly, after the apostle are their immediate successors. And you note when you read the New Testament that they didn't lay their hands to establish other apostles after them. Instead, their authority uh, was transmitted to the elders. Not exactly in the same way. Elders are not apostles. And the... Uh, the, the faith has been transmitted to the saints once for all. It means that there's nothing to add. Uh, there's no more revelation or apostolic uh, new revelation that is going on. But the elders that are established in different churches are there to preserve the apostolic um, teaching, to preach it, expound it, explain it, apply it, uh, not adding anything else. But we, we are continuing that. And as Baptists, we rightly believe in the universal priesthood of every believer. But that doesn't mean that we don't see a particular calling to the ministers of the gospel. And that would be second in rank uh, concern in this mission. Paul is saying to Timothy, who's, who's a pastor, Second uh, Timothy 4 verse 5, As for you... Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So Timothy has a task, he has a call, he has a mandate, he has a mission, and part of his pastoral work is to do the work of an evangelist. Um, so to keep doing this mission that is here entrusted to the disciples in Matthew 28. 
And thirdly, we need to add every disciples that are concerned by this mission, uh, the church collectively. We are all sent by Christ in the world. As he was sent by the Father, he sends us also in the world. And here, um, while there's certainly an individual dimension to this task that is incumbent to all of us individually, but I think we should mainly consider the church mission collectively. Um, so the way individually we will fulfill our mission, it's by being part of a particular church that will be missionary, that will be into mission. Paul is saying in Romans 10 verse 15, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Preachers are not uh, self-supporting, self-sent agent of the Lord. They are being sent by the church, recognized by the church, put apart by the church, supported by the prayers of the saints and by a collective effort to do this mission. So uh, we need to be involved in a church that takes seriously our Lord's word and our Lord's mandate to us that we have something to do here in this world. And the mission is to make disciples. And there are really two sides of it. It's not just evangelism. It's evangelism making new believers, preaching the word to those who are not aware, but it's making disciples. It's not just making converts. It's training them, training disciples, so edification. And these are, 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 are two elements. Uh, we will come back to that uh, very soon when we'll talk about Jesus' instruction. Um, but how do we do that? Well, it's, there are different things that we ought to do as a church and we don't have time to go through the different application. But the main uh, means that the Lord is using or calling us to use to make disciples is by the foolishness of preaching. This is the mean that the Lord is using to save believers, to preserve believers, to build His church. And we do that um, as we go everywhere. Uh, there's no place that is outside of our uh, reach that the Lord does not want to reach. Um, it doesn't mean that we have a responsibility uh, as each evangel uh, individual church to, uh, to, be, to be able to do the mission everywhere. We start by where we were placed. And if we can help to do the mission other places in the world by praying, by sending, by supporting in different ways, we will do it as the Lord will provide many means. And let us realize the greatness of our Lord's kingdom. He doesn't want to establish his kingdom in just one nation, but he's sending us to all nations. There is no other kingdom that is as universal as this one. You live in a very multicultural country, but everyone that comes here becomes an American. Uh, and, and, and there's something that will unify. But our Lord's kingdom is much more greater than America or any other attempt to do something universal like uh, former empires were trying to establish themselves on different many nations and, and no one really was able. But do you realize that our Lord has established his kingdom over all the earth and it's still growing and he's still reaching nations and tongues and tribes everywhere under one king, under one rule. No other Emperor, no other king has ever succeeded doing that because they did it by sword, by force, by political uh, intricacies. But our Lord do it by the, the power of his might, through the preaching of his word, by his Holy Spirit, bringing all the elect to form one kingdom that will stand forever beyond this age. And we need to understand that this is the first, um, the priority of our mission to make disciples. 
Uh, we care about the poor, feeding the uh, hungry, and many different things that we can do. But we ought not to do these first, because many other people, many other uh, organizations, associations, political entities will, will do also these uh, other uh, good works in this world, but no one will take care of the, this mission of making disciples of Christ if it's not the church. So this is the first thing we ought to do. Thirdly, Jesus' baptism. Christ's disciples ought to receive a visible sign and seal of their belonging to this kingdom. We know that we are not saved by baptism. We're saved by faith, by receiving, by believing and confessing that Christ is Lord and trusting in Him And when we hear the gospel. But He's giving us a visible sign, a visible word that is uh, tangible to us, that is confirming to those who receive that, those who receive the Lord's ordinances, that they are His kingdom people, His covenant people, We have in our Confession of Faith, chapter 29, paragraph 1, a good definition of what baptism is. Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament. Important, it's not an ordinance of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. And we should resist the temptation to mix circumcision with baptism or try to use Old Testament. There are some some similarities, but we ought to define the ordinances by the proper covenant to which they belong. So it's a new covenant, a New Testament ordinance ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized, to be to the one who is baptized, a sign of his fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, of remission of sins, and of giving up into God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. You see, when you're being baptized, well, you're first of all receiving. You're not giving. You're receiving a confirmation that you're the children of God, that you have the forgiveness of your sin. But you're also giving yourself to the Lord. You're offering yourself and as a living sacrifice, united to Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection, and you want to live in the new life, the newness of life. So we ought to be baptized according to the command our Lord, but who ought to be baptized? And here we come to a major um, distinction among the Reformed. On one side you have the Reformed Baptists who say, well, the command is to baptize disciples. And Peter Baptist will say the command is to baptize nations. And here is, there is a, an interesting um, exegetical uh, difficulty. If you uh, read the verse, he says, baptizing them. What is the reference to the pronoun them? Who's them? And the closest reference, the pedo-baptists say, is ta etne. In Greek, it is the nation. Baptize the nation. So they use that verse to account for the uh, establishment of the church by the magisterial authority. For them, uh, when Constantine became a Christian and, and, and Christianity became a uh, 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 state religion and the church of multitude, it was not something wrong. It was what Jesus intended for his kingdom to become, that eventually it would grow and that nations would be baptized. So they don't, they'd know that in those baptisms there would be some unsaved and saved people, but that's not a problem uh, but because slowly the nations through Christianity are brought to submission, to uh, obedience to Christ. So they're not thinking about um, baptizing only people who were converted, uh, but you baptize entire nations. And the best response to this exegetical argument from the pedo-baptists, I found it in John Gill's commentary. Let's read it. Baptizing them, not all nations, 
for the antecedent to the, to the relative dam cannot be all nations, since pantata etne, all nations in Greek, the words for all nations are of the neutral gender, whereas autus, dam, is of the masculine. Nor can it be, uh, can it be thought that it should be in the mind of Christ that all the individuals of all nations should be baptized as Etons, Turks, and Jews. Uh, but the, the explanation is to baptize matertas, disciples, supposed and contained in the word matetusete. So, the text doesn't have the noun disciples. The noun disciples is matetes. But it is implied in the verb make disciples, matetusete. So, this is the antecedent to baptize them. Who is them? Well, it's not the nations. It's the disciples that we will make out of the nations. Those who will respond faithfully by faith. In what name are we to baptize? You see, not baptize them in my name. The Christian baptism is a Trinitarian baptism. We baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when we find in the rest of the New Testament baptism in the name of, of the Lord or in the name of Jesus, it is implied that it's a distinction between other baptisms that are not Christian baptism but not the mode exactly that we baptize only in, in Jesus' name, but we baptize in the name of the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the Lord's baptism or the, 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 the baptism in the name of our Lord. By contrast to the baptism of, of uh, other baptism among the Jews that they had. So this is a covenant sign that we are the special property of the Lord God, creator of heaven and earth. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit puts His name on us. Just like when you buy a book or you uh, uh, lend a book to someone, you write your name on it because you say, this is mine and I want it back. Well, God puts His name on us. We are His. We are baptized in His name and Note that there is one name. He doesn't say baptize them in the names, but in the name singular. But then, in this name, he includes three persons. So the recognition of the divine person is an es uh, essential to the true faith. Let me quote Francis Turton uh, regarding this, this point. He says, for it is not sufficient to know that God is, quote sit in Latin, as to existence, or what he is, quid sit, as to his attributes. But we must know also who he is, quid sit, as to the persons, as he presents himself to be known by us in his word. Well, many people believe that God exists. That God is, well, that's not sufficient to be baptized. Or what God is, that is eternal or infinite, they recognize some attributes, but they need to recognize who He is, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you reject that, you're not a Christian. Let me go on with the quote. Hence, whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. 1 John 2, 23. And he that honoreth the son, uh, he that honoreth not the son, honoreth not the father which hath sent him. John five twenty three. Therefore, God has revealed Himself as one in essence, three in persons: the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thus, he who does not acknowledge and believe the Trinity as not the true God, but has erected for himself an idol in the place of God. Fourth, Jesus' instruction. 
the Great Commission as a double orientation. And the church should have in its functioning, in its church life, this double orientation too. An external focus. Go. This is evangelization. And we ought to use different means, but we ought to bring the gospel to those outside of the church. But also an internal focus. Teach those who will believe. And this is edification. A good church will neglect neither of these two components of what the church life is about. Evangelization and edification. And it's not always easy to keep it balanced, um, but we ought not to neglect any of these two. This commands also reveal to us what we should expect from a local church. We shouldn't expect a local church to meet all our needs, to provide for our physical need, our social needs, but first of all, for our spiritual needs. And oftentimes we will have many more blessings and not just spiritual edification. We'll find friends and family and, and, and a lot of support. But first of all, Jesus, when he's establishing this mission for the church, he's saying it is there to teach, not to uh, do many things else. Uh, it, there will be different things that the church can do, but it ought not to come uh, if teaching is not already in place. And we all have a part to play. We're all disciples, we're all being taught, but we also have a, a, a work to do in, in the teaching somehow. Uh, it's not necessarily that we will all teach from the pulpit, not at all, but we are all in the making of disciples when you're training your own child to uh, to uh, believe in the Lord and, and you raise him in the nurture and the discipline of the Lord while well, you're making disciple. And when you're uh, being a, 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 a brother and a sister uh, to a new convert and, 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 and disciple him and, and go with him to uh, teach him the, the Christian ethics and the Christian doctrines, well, even though you're not a preacher, you're being a teacher. Uh, you're making disciple, and this is uh, part of what the, the 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 edification of the church is. It's not just through the 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 teachers uh, that are publicly preaching the gospel and the word of God that the edification is going on, but it's by through every members. Ephesians four verse sixteen from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Oikodomen eautus. Everyone is doing the building. So everyone is concerned by this external, internal work of building up the church by making disciples. And the verb that is being used, teaching them to observe, the word observe is tereo. Uh, uh, we we um, can translate it by keeping. Uh, so what does it mean to observe what Jesus has taught? Well, it means to keep and defend the Christian doctrine. And it means to obey God's commandment. So to keep... What he has taught is to defend, to understand and defend and maintain the Christian doctrine. And it's to apply, to obey, to submit to the commandments of God. Otherwise, if we don't do that, if we don't maintain the uh, orthodox doctrine and the obedience to God's commandment, how can we call him our Lord? He says in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? And finally, Jesus' presence. Our Lord, thankfully, does not leave us alone in this mission. He said, I'm going away, and I'll come back. 
at the end of the world and see how you've done. He's leaving, that's true. But he's staying. At some point he say, I'm, I'm not going to be with you anymore. And, and, and your hearts are filled with, with sadness because of that. But here, the very last word that he's saying to them in this gospel is that I will be with you to the end of the age. How is he going to be present? Uh, John Calvin explained the nature of that presence which the Lord promises to his followers ought to be understood spiritually. For it is not necessary that he should descend from heaven in order to assist us, since he can assist us by the grace of his Spirit, as if he stretched out his hand from heaven. For he who in respect of his body is at great distance from us, not only diffuse the efficacy of his spirit through the whole world, but even actually dwells in us. And this is great comfort to go on with the work that he has given us. He's not going away. He will be there to do it with us. I know that sometimes I'm giving a chores to my, my kid to do and they're very discouraged, it's too big, their, their room is too messy, or there's too much dishes to do. They're, they're, they cannot do that. But if, if we stay and we start doing that with them, they will receive courage enough and, 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 and they will be happy to, to make it and they will stop complaining. Well, it's a bit like that. He didn't say, you do it and, and, and I go away and I'll come back later and you're better having finished this. He will be present. And his presence is not only spiritual, that's true, it's through the agency of the Holy Spirit, but it's also covenantal. And there are three means by which he manifests his present presence in the church. The pro proclamation of his word, the application of his sacraments, and the discipline of his people. And if you read carefully, I think you will see that these three means that corresponds to the three marks of the visible church are also the present in the Great Commission as the means that we're using to do this very commission. Go. To do what? To preach. Preach His Word. That's how we make disciples. That's, that's not just by, by doing humanitarian work. It's by preaching the gospel that we evangelize and that we edify the disciples. So the proclamation of his word makes him present. And then what do we do with those who, who respond? Well, we baptize. This is the application of one of the two ordinances of the new covenant. But those who are baptized will also partake of the, the Lord's Supper, even though if it's, if it's not mentioned here. Um, but in this baptism and in these ordinances, he's present. That's what he has taught uh, to uh, his disciples Every time that they will do that in remembrance of him, he's, he's present, he's with us. Uh, we're partaking of him, we're in communion with Christ. And thirdly, by teaching, uh, he's present. Uh, but here, uh, I'm thinking about the, the, the teaching, and the teaching is the discipling, the, the discipline of the church. And sometimes when we hear this word church discipline, we think of corrective discipline. But that's not the only way we should think about discipline. There's the corrective discipline, but there's also the formative discipline. So as disciples, we're all being under the discipline of the Lord by being taught uh, how to live and how to think about the truths that are being taught and how we should apply them. So that's how he's present. The preaching of his word, the application of his sacraments, and the discipline of his people in the church. And this is his presence that makes this mission possible and powerful. Because even though the mission is not finished yet, well, we can observe that it has been a great success. I don't know of a, any other kingdom that was able to establish itself with such power and strength over all the earth without using the sword. Well, at some point, uh, some of the, 
the church has used the sword, but that was a mistake. Um, but just by using the spiritual uh, weapons, we're going forward and the, the church has, has been very successful. And the only explanation is because he was present building his church. And that's what he said, I will build my church. And now he tells us how he will build his church. It's through this great commission, but he will be present to do it through us. But note, final note, that his presence is not promised to us just when we're gathered as a church. And I know as Reformed people how we, we cherish and, 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 and consider with great respect the, uh, the sacred ordinance of when we come together and, and as the special presence of our Lord when he says that when two or three are gathered in my name and, and the, the authority that we have in his name to, uh, to, 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 to make his work and to apply his word. Um, and, and this is true. But he's not saying, I will be with you every Lord's day, but every day, always, everywhere. So that means that there's something special when we're gathered, but we're always in mission, everywhere we go as his disciples in the world. He will be with us to the end of the age. And this is comforting to us that the very last promise of this gospel, that he will be present, that he will not depart, was also the very first um, word of opening in, in Matthew, in the first chapter, Matthew 1, 23, when the angel explained who this one that the virgin will bear. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He has came, he became incarnate, so he can be with us. And by leaving this world, he has not left us. He is the Alpha Omega from beginning and Lord who will be with us as he has promised. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord Jesus, for your word that you have given to your first disciples, but us, many centuries later, are receiving your word and want to submit our souls to your great commandments to know how you want us to serve you. But we thank you that you ended this gospel not by giving us a command, but a promise, the promise of your presence and that we are comforted that you are with us indeed, with us right now and every day to the end of the world. May you increase our faith. May you strengthen our hearts that we may go on to serve you in this world, not fearing men and fearing our Lord and loving him. And thank you for being with us. Amen.